You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. I'm Calvin, and you're listening to Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. This show is an experiment in civility, gathering people who disagree to sit down face-to-face and having them discuss their disagreements. Do we ever arrive at consensus? Sometimes. What's most important is we've got the conversation started. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. I am your host, Calvin Moore. And per usual, I am here with my co-hosts, Ken Strait and Steve Phelps. What's going on, guys? I'm doing great, Calvin. Thank you for asking. Oh, I'm good. Uh, you know, I, I, no. I asked you what's going on. I didn't ask how you were. No, no. But I'm going to tell you how I am. I, I've got the next two weeks off of work. Uh, and oh, so, must be nice. Uh, it is great. I'm, I'm sitting back here. I'm, I'm about to start. I got a new book I'm about to start. It's a Chris Wallace book. It was a Father's Day gift. Countdown 1945. Next week, I'm going to a beach on Lake Michigan. Life is good. There. See, I, always, I never have anything fun to talk about or, or oh. happy or exciting. And I feel like like this is a good time. So I'm sharing. Sounds Which like beach? a good day. <laughs> Kent? Yeah. Uh, so when you say it's, when you say it's Chris Wallace's book, is that uh, Fox News Chris Wallace? No, it's probably just some schmuck that put together. Okay, so it's, words. so it's Fox News Chris Wallace. I did not know he was a, a World War II historian. I, well, uh, I'll be the judge of that, I guess. Okay, I'll you'll be the judge. Be the judge. All right. I mean, not to say he. I mean, he he wrote it with somebody. So I'm guessing uh, Mitch Weiss is probably the historian he worked with. Okay. Um, you know, but anyway, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do this to you, Steve. Yeah. I didn't want to. But I have Chris Wallace behind the curtain here right now. Chris, come on out. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so, I mean, what, what's the countdown 1945's name? Of the yeah, book it, it's roughly about the decision to drop the bombs in uh, Japan in 1945 and oh. about basically the fallout after that. Pardon the pun. Okay, so cool. Is, is, uh, so that's the American version. Is Clint Eastwood going to also film a second version where it's from the uh, point of view of the Japanese? You know, it's from the point of view of a chair, Calvin. That's a convention okay. joke. Never mind. Gotcha. Anyway, let's go on. So anyway, I spent, your I spent most, <laughs> I mean, I spent most of the day, actually, uh, this morning, I, I walked 12 and a half miles today. Just uh, getting out there, getting some sun, getting some cardio, tanning up. Went okay, great. so did you, did you walk six miles and then turn around? Or did you walk 12 miles? You're like, I need an Uber now. No, I, uh, I, I walked, uh, you know, in and, around, in and around my neighborhood, you know, back and forth through various streets. Then I totaled it all up on GMAP pedometer, and uh, I had gotten to 12.47 miles. Good old GMAP pedometer. You know, I do I that on, uh, I do that a couple times a week, usually not that long, but uh, to catch up on all my podcasts. Because it's a it's a uh, it's a quirk of mine that I am unable to listen to podcasts uh, while sitting still. I have no. A lot of people are you just not driving as much, and so that's why you're doing that. Oh, I can't. I, I don't even like to listen to them in the car. Usually treadmill oh, okay. and treadmill and out walking. So okay. uh, tre- treadmills are unavailable since March. Maybe you've heard, but uh, but yeah. I mean, you can get them. But, yeah, you just sure. gotta have them at home. Well, yeah, but yeah. I'm uh I am uh what's the, what's the word not geeky but uh, I'm a I'm a treadmill snob and so the the type of treadmill I can afford I don't want so I just go to the gym. Gotcha, understood. Yep. All right, well, um I had a, a solid week, solid work week per usual. Um, really enjoying uh, my job still. 
Uh, some stuff came out in the news that was not flattering about my work. How are you feeling, Calvin? You feeling okay? I'm feeling fine. I've been working from home for a while, um, but some news Good. came out. I won't, I won't go into all of it, but uh, it was really interesting to see um, employees who are generally very, I love working here. This is the best place ever. Just start dripping vitriol. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was a sight to behold. I'll just tell you that. Um, but I'm at home. Uh, so I wasn't too worried about the news that came out in the free press. Um, and I still support the leadership of my company. I, I would hate to be in any position as a CEO with what's going on right now. No one's ever. I'll tell you what, uh, when Steve and um, I but, heard the news, we, we were, uh, you were not, you were not nervous, but when we saw your company was affected, we didn't want to spend time with you anymore. Yeah, so, absolutely. Okay. And you know, this reminds me, Calvin's response this. there reminds me of Hot Shots Bart Du, where yes. uh, I believe yes. the, the Admiral or whoever is captured is saying, they're treating me very well. They're feeding me <laughs> enough food. <laughs> yep. <laughs> My captors are wonderful. Uh, uh, um, anyway. because of, so, I mean, uh, those of you who listen know that uh, just kind of as a, as a hobbyist, I have a tour company in the city of Detroit. Uh, 2000, you know, 2020, I have not done a single tour. I was going to say, when was the last time you gave a tour? Um, uh, until today, I Ooh, did one. You did that. Uh, yeah, so you guys have heard me talking about this one wheel that I got. Well, yeah, there's, a, yeah. there's, a, yeah. there's a one wheel community, uh, one wheel Detroit community and on Facebook. And so I got online. And I said, hey, I own a tour company. Haven't done a single tour this year. Don't worry. I'm not hard up for cash. I got a full time job working for a great company. Um, but I got this itch. I got to scratch. I got to talk about the city to somebody and it's got to be strangers. So um, let's uh, let's go out on the one wheel. Let's socially distance as much as we can. And let me talk to you guys about this city that I love. And so 30 people showed up today. Wow. Today. Um, it's a very yeah, warm today, day to be doing today. that. Today was a very hot day. But again, we can go like 20, 25 miles an hour on these things. Did you go so inside getting, anywhere? We I did guess. not go inside okay. any place. Okay. Um, we stopped also, several. Did they pay we you or were they, were they just scratching your itch? We're, we're going to get to that in a minute. <laughs> okay. um, so one of the things I always say is, hey, uh, so during the spring and summer and early fall, I do a free walking tour of downtown. Um, and... Today, everybody was on one wheel. So there were spots that we were just bypassing because I wanted to get a nice breeze. Um, and I was trying to do this. When I do a walking tour, I can only do like a certain spot in downtown. Well, the one wheel, you can go a little bit further. So it's kind of a mix of a walking tour and a bus tour. So we went a little bit further than a walking tour could go, but not as far as a bus tour would go, if that makes any yeah. sense. So at the beginning of every tour, I always say, hey, you know, this tour is free. However, I do accept donations at the end. That's not obligated. But if you do feel obligated, I'm not going to fight you. Um, and you have to understand these one wheels. I didn't think that I would make as much money as I did today for two and a half hours of work. Um, $7,000. It is good, uh, no, it is good work where you can get let's it. Let's just oh. put it this way. Yeah. People who own one wheels have yeah. a certain amount of expendable income. Yep. Well, obviously that, they bought a one wheel. Yeah, the yep. I mean the I have the small one and it's nine hundred dollars. The large mm -hmm. one is seventeen hundred dollars, and they had these things modded to the hilt: extra batteries, speaker, Bluetooth speaker systems, like all sorts of things that I I don't have on mine yet. I got stickers. So like, Calvin, I, I, didn't I, it I didn't it dawn on you to cater to the bougie community long before today? I, I did. Yeah. Uh, but this? now I'm thinking about changing my company's name from 7.2 Tours mm. to Rich People Only Tours. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. The bourgeoisie. Yeah, absolutely. I think you can really get rid of some of the riffraff if you uh, put some sort of requirements on it. Um, but yeah, no, I, I made a, a decent amount of money. I was able to give that to my wife to say, hey, put this towards some bills um, because tips are a good amount of money during the summer and now I've not been making them. So it was really nice to really, You know who would really appreciate uh, a big tip is uh, I'm just saying, I know a certain kid who graduated <laughs> from high school whose party you did not come to. Don't know who you're talking about. Anyway, okay, moving, moving on. on. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Some so, callbacks uh, are a little stale, but go on. Yeah, I know, right? Yes. I don't even know what you're talking about. Uh, that never came up in any of our episodes. Nope. So tonight, uh, we're going to continue our election 2020 series. Um, and we're going to be talking about a topic that, admittedly, I don't know a lot about. I spent a, a, a little bit of time reading up on the topic tonight. But we're going to be talking about foreign policy uh, and I, I don't know when it comes to going to uh, going to the polls uh, that a lot of people are thinking, you know, what is our stance towards uh, our allies? What is our stance towards our enemies? But in any given news cycle in the last four years, and actually well before that, obviously, uh, it's come up quite a bit, our interactions with other co- uh, countries, uh, other sover- sovereign nations. And, and so wanted to bring on two people to uh, to talk about the topic of foreign policy. And to that end, I'd like to, to introduce uh, both of them. Uh, first up, uh, no uh, no stranger to our show, Professor Friend Saeed of the show. Khan, friend, friend of the, of the show. show. At this point, he's a booster. Um, uh, he's Professor got a jacket. Saeed, he's got a jacket. He does. Slipping us cash and envelopes, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Professor Saeed Khan is currently the uh, Department of History. Uh, he, he works currently in the Department of History and he's a lecturer, senior lecturer, uh, in the Department of Near East and Asian Studies at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, where he teaches Islamic and Middle East history, Islamic civilizations, and history of Islamic political thought. Mr. Khan is also a research fellow at Wayne State University's Center for the Study of Citizenship. He is also adjunct professor in Islamic studies at the University of Detroit Mer- Mercy and at Rochester University, co-teaching a course on, uh, on Muslim Christian diversity. Saeed, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Great to be back. The question I would have is, uh, we do about 40 episodes a year. Saeed is typically on roughly 12. Are we going to read the whole bio every single time? You never that know. Is, it could be new, okay. uh, new listenership. That's not the whole bio. Oh, gosh. Okay. That is a third Saeed of the bio. goes on and on and on. I mean, we he's, edited that. he's, he's, he's done some things. He's done uh, some yes. things. Yeah, you should be a junior lecturer. It. I can't believe we you, should... were, you were bored by a third of his uh, of his no, body. that I'm is just, sad. I, it's it's no. It just, maybe it's the same it's, third. This, it, with that kind of attitude, Saeed is never going to get out of that fifth level parking garage. He's never going to mm. move beyond parking attendant. Yeah, that mm-hmm. is a topical joke from last week. Go on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so fair, but to be fair, uh, is like bored with at least a third of whatever I say. So that there's <laughs> symmetry there. <laughs> we edited it uh, out. This is a twelve minute show. By the time yep. we're done. Sounds Next okay. up, um, first time on the show, um, but comes highly recommended, we have Dr. Peter F. Trumbor. Um, he's a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. Uh, he joined the Oakland faculty in 2002 after spending three years teaching at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, in his earlier life, he spent nearly a decade as a newspaper writer and editor before earning his PhD at the University of Connecticut. Uh, lots of other stuff. Publish some stuff. Google Scholar. Um, okay. He, he teaches. <laughs> right. a, no, no. But I want to. I'm just kind of going through his bio. No, no. Uh, 
He teaches a wide array of uh, courses in the field of international relations, including but not limited to uh, international terrorism, negotiation and bargaining, international conflict and security, U.S. foreign policy, and an introductory level uh, issues in world politics course. Uh, Dr. Trumbor, thank you so much for uh, being on the show tonight. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. By the way, no Calvin, could you, just, ever, yes. could you just could you just pronounce one more time the name of the city in Massachusetts? Where <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to. I didn't want to jump on him so early in the show. Worcester, but, but uh, Worcester say, would did, not did, be did, correct. Did I say did I say Worcester or Worcester? Uh, Another one Worcester. of those is right. Worcester. 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 We're, okay. Okay. Worcester. Wow, that is uh, that is very Polish. Awesome. You just <laughs> throw in letters in there that aren't there. That's awesome. No, I'm I just kidding. Um, I would have never known that. Is, the Worcester is somebody who handles a politician's fundraising. There you <laughs> oh, go. Okay. So got That's it. good. Yeah. Fair enough. I, <laughs> I stand corrected. Also, nuclear. So good job. Um, I know. I, I, I can at least get certain things right. Uh, so uh, let's let's dive right into questions here. And, and the first time you speak, I know uh, Saeed, your voice is pretty familiar on the show, but uh, and we only have two people. But uh, say your name first, uh, and, and then uh, jump into the question. But um, can you describe the priorities and strategies of post Cold War American foreign policy? And I know that's a weird place to start because we've had foreign policy since the inception of the nation. But um, I guess we want to kind of focus more on today's policies. And I think starting there is a good place because uh, a spot people might be familiar with. So can you describe the priorities and strategies of post-Cold War American foreign policy? And either one of you can go first. Peter, why don't you go first? First time. Uh, okay. Well, thanks, Abe. So this, this is Peter. Um, yeah. So here's the sort of thing, right? The Cold War ends and we literally didn't really know what to do with ourselves from a foreign policy perspective. So there was a lot of drift. Um, there was some sense that maybe what the United States should do should be to, you know, focus our energies on sort of our international economic standing. But there was also this perception that as the last man standing um, at the end of the Cold War, that basically all the major problems had been resolved and the United States could sort of uh, just stand on top of the, of the heap and kind of coast. And the, and the reality, of course, was is that all kinds of things were happening around the globe that we weren't paying a lot of attention to. Um, and it's really 9-11 that shocks the United States out of this period of sort of forward policy torpor. You know, we played some, uh, we tried to play some very crude kind of manipulative games in the Middle East, playing Iraq and Iran off against each other. We tried to do some other things um, in terms of, of sort of cementing our regional predominance, but without a whole lot of kind of central focus. So if there's any virtue to what happens in 2001, it's that it gives U.S. foreign policy uh, something to really, you know, um, clamp its teeth on and and shake like a, a terrier with a, a rat. So uh, the years right after 9-11 was just a lot of drift or the years after the Cold War was a lot of drift. I, I guess my I guess my, my question uh, about that, Peter, is. Um, and I know opinions can vary, but uh, wasn't everything that happened in foreign policy after 9-11 bad? Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, right. mostly. I would say it's hard to, it's hard to say that, that uh, our, our foreign policy response to 9-11 was sort of a triumph of, of well-reasoned statesmanship. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the bottom line is it gave us a focus for our energies that was had really been been lacking up to that point. There was that 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 period from from 89 to 2001 
is the United States is sort of like wandering in the wilderness trying to figure out exactly what we, sh what we should be doing. We've, we've got this, this vast uh, arsenal at our disposal. We have all the economic and, and diplomatic resources that we could ever want, and we just weren't entirely sure what to do with it. All the darts, but no dartboard. Yeah, I think it's a fair way to summarize it. So yeah, I, yeah, so first of all, I wouldn't think that it was all bad, Kent. I mean, we didn't uh, reinvade Grenada. Uh, mm -hmm. We didn't- Not, not on paper. No. <laughs> <laughs> we should have added it to the updated version of Risk. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we didn't oppose Mandela's uh, ascension to be president of uh, South Africa. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm digressing. <laughs> yes. I want to be a bit glass since all of you are drinking a bit glass half full. Uh, but um, no, I agree with with Peter that, uh, and I'm I'm really glad that uh, Peter, you mentioned the phrase "last man standing" because a very important book came out right after uh, the Cold War ended by Francis Fukuyama, which was entitled uh, "The End of History and the Last mm. Man Standing." And so, to focus on the end of history part, uh, this was then seen as heralding a new era that Western liberal democracy had prevailed over evil communism and authoritarianism and totalitarianism. And in a sense, it was gonna usher in uh, a thousand years of peace. And America basically just had to set for the entire planet uh, cruise control to let us uh, carry everyone forward in that, in that destiny. That was a spectacularly bad idea because I don't think what was taken into account were the number of power vacuums that then uh, emerge. And we see these happening almost immediately uh, in the aftermath of the Cold War ending uh, in the Balkans. Now, part of the problem wasn't the flare up of these power vacuums, but it was in America's uh, inability to handle it properly. In the Balkans, uh, we figured that we, and I, I apologize, Peter, I don't know how long you've been in Michigan and if you're familiar with Euchre, uh, but this was the opportunity for America to feel as though it could go it alone. I, I am aware of Euchre. It's a game I don't play. Okay, yes. Well, that means that you're not a Eucharist. Um, but, um, hey <laughs> well, Apologize. Religious apologize jokes. immediately for that joke. Working, working off Worcester. <laughs> that was so, an honest mistake. You did that on purpose. <laughs> prove it. <laughs> but, but um, the, the fact that uh, we felt as though we could uh, ignore other still important uh, players in uh, geopolitics like Russia and then start to creep into its uh, not even just backyard, but even into its front yard by bringing in former Soviet republics, former members of the Warsaw Pact, uh, having them enticed to join either NATO or uh, the European Union. Uh, Russia was not in a position to really object at the time, uh, but they never forgot it. We also need to remember that around that time that the Cold War was ending, uh, China was uh, making a major shift. After Tiananmen Square in 1989, some of the policies of uh, opening up its economic system under Deng Xiaoping were starting to, uh, to emerge. The uh, whole issue after Afghanistan uh, was, again, a spectacular disaster. We pretty much just left when the Soviet Union did, leaving the country for 
a major civil war and then the emergence of, as, as Peter Apley put, sowing the seeds for uh, terrorism with Al-Qaeda uh, and uh, really moving from an opportunity to steward the ship to basically taking the rudder off the ship. So it's, it, that was definitely, uh, it's, it's interesting that you say that because it was after 9-11 happened, um, a friend of mine, Doug, had some book, I do not remember the name of the book or the author, but the first chapter of the book was titled Afghanistan is a Watershed. And his argument was essentially about, hey, Soviets pulled out, then we did, and we just kind of left people to their own devices. That may be an oversimplification, but l- let me let me ask this question. It, it's it's not on, on script, but the the first week we we talked we talked about what you know how do elections work people are interested in that kind of thing um hey then the it's, next not, week it's not we, the russians we, it's not the russians pick their favorite candidate and no it's it's yeah well we can get to that in a minute but uh but it's it's accessible it's accessible these are things people pay attention to their eyes don't gloss over Last week we talked about education. Well, it's by the accessible. way, we'll be having we'll be having a uh, episode coming up in mid-November called "Do Elections Work?" Not how do they work? Yes, yeah, um, yeah. So did we'll it work? Did, yes. did it work or not work? Depending on which side of the aisle you're on. But um, no, um, but last week we we're talking about education, and we had educators on, and you know, I had several people comment to me who listened to the episode. Hey, you know, it was really good to hear people because I'm worried about how my kids, how this impacts my kids when it comes to foreign policy. I, I think, and in, in just listening to the two of you, I'm going, all right, uh, awesome, great. I get it because I've read on it. I think on it. Um, I listen to the Up First podcast from the New York Times every morning. So I'm hearing reporters talking about spaces that I otherwise would not really hear about because uh, they've got great reporters. Um, if you're not subscribed to that podcast, please go listen to it. Um, but your you're Joe the Plumber doesn't know necessarily about foreign policy with Iraq and Iran other than the news bites. Uh, let alone, let, let's be honest, everything you've said is kind of like everything that's been said is kind of poking around Russia and in the Middle East. But we have four, there's how many sovereign nations in the world that we technically have foreign policy with? Like, what's our foreign policy with Lithuania? I don't know. Does it matter? Nobody cares about those. They don't make the news. They're like, I know. Peter we're knows, right? And so, <laughs> I can probably go to World War Three yeah. with them. And, and so I, I guess the question for me, who doesn't know much, uh, like my questions really come from like a book I'm reading about foreign policy. 195. Uh, is, uh, 195. Okay, thank Countries you, Aaron Sorkin. In the world. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron Sorkin. Um, <laughs> but Sorkin uh, I, I guess- about foreign policy. Uh, true story. Uh, uh, I guess the question for- that I would ask for our general listener who doesn't think about these things, who hasn't taken a class in foreign policy or international relations, um, what are what are they to make of how important this is in terms of who they vote for? Like, does it does it matter? Because we do a lot of talks where we talk about local politics is really what you need to be thinking about. Your mayor, your local judges, that's what you need to be thinking about. A world away, Iraq, you hear the news bites from Fox News or MSNBC, and you just go from there. How can people really, I guess, dive into how this matters? Because most well, of them are like, I don't even know about Russia. Uh, something you said, Saeed, we need to remember. I'm like, 
we need to remember, I didn't even know that that had happened. So, well, then we need to member if you haven't had it before. Yeah, I remember. I remember. <laughs> I mean, so Calvin, this is, I think, the unfortunate kind of irony here. It absolutely matters for American foreign policy who gets elected in November. It also is true that virtually no one is going to vote on the basis of whose foreign policy they think is better. Um, this is generally speaking, it's not, it's not that it's, it's not that it is inconsequential as an issue. It is not uh, a policy area on which the vast majority of voters are going to make their decision. Maybe that said, what, four or five percent. Not even. I think that's not, generous. Okay. Now, now, right. but but that said, right? Candidates themselves recognize it's important, and 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 you can see that because they will in fact spend time talking on the stump about their foreign policy agenda. They will spend money to advertise uh, about you know what's wrong with their their opponents approach to foreign policy. But the reality is, I think as you guys probably well understand, that when you, when you sit down to fill out that ballot, that you're not filling in that bubble based upon you know, which candidate has got the stronger resolve to have Lithuania's back, Lithuania being a <laughs> member of NATO, right. uh, who we are treaty <laughs> obligated to defend, they're not gonna ask themselves, you know, who's got Lithuania's back harder, Trump or Biden? Well, we've we've had to worry about sure. Lithuania ever since uh, you know Captain Ramius was the uh, was common during the Red October. Yeah, uh, you know uh, the Sean Villain Connery. Sean Connery is one handsome man. I will tell you this. So, <laughs> segue here. My wife and I this is completely off topic. My wife and I were watching The Can't Rock. Mm-hmm. We were watching The Rock. She had never seen it, and she turns to me and she says, "You know what?" Oh no! I, I feel like he would have made a great James Bond if he was younger. And I just looked at her like, I, well, I, I, I'm sure. Every, I, I know this is not a this is not a video medium for everybody listening, but you know the look I'm giving right yeah. now. You all understand. She's like, and she goes, "What was he James Bond? I don't know. I was like, was he James Bond?" For the he audience, is. for the audience, it was the same look that Jonathan Swan gave President Trump when mm. he yes. had yes. the document. Yeah, so, yeah. These, so, these are very so, basic questions. So I wonder. The, ro- I the Rock has a uh, the ro- the Rock has an excellent treatise when it comes to foreign policy on the difference between winners and losers. You should look it up. It does. It yeah. does. So does Dwayne Johnson. R.I.P. Ed, um, Ed Harris. But 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 getting back to the point that you raised. Uh, about why does it matter? And you you invoked the plumber. Well, okay, what supplies do plumbers use? Uh, cast iron, steel, uh, aluminum, copper. Uh, the largest uh, exporters of copper in the world are Chile and Peru and China. Uh, scrap iron is uh, provided. Um, most of the largest uh, steel companies in the world are now owned by Indian conglomerates. So when we're going to be talking about trade as being a major issue in foreign policy, yes, it's going to matter to that plumber. Now, he or she may feel as though it's a little bit attenuated from uh, when they go into a wholesale place to pick up their supplies, but they're definitely going to notice uh, both the, uh, the amount of supply that's available and the price, depending on some of the policies that the United States has with these countries. 
And and I think that's a good point, Saeed, in that uh, like I just uh, saw a story that came up uh, about uh, aluminum. Like I've I've heard about aluminum, or if you're uh, British, aluminium. Aluminium. Um, aluminium. Aluminium. Okay, um, but there is a shortage on aluminum right now because of all the beer that would go into a keg at a bar now has to be canned because people are at home because of COVID-19. Like, oh, never thought about that kind of thing. Uh, but the people who are thinking about that are cores into beers uh, and, and those, those people. Uh, you just brought up, hey, you know, Joe, Joe the plumber is going to feel it when he goes to Lowe's. Um, but I think that most people aren't thinking about it in a high level manner, like a large <clears throat> conglomerate company would. Does that make sense? Like, hey, like a Coors yeah. needs to pay attention to what's going on because we need all this aluminum and now what's going on with us in Canada is an issue and now it's affecting our bottom line versus a guy who's like, I need a pipe fitter for yeah, this so Calvin particular job. Calvin, this is like literally the very first topic that I raise when I, when I, in the very first class of my Teach American Foreign Policy. I'm going to audit your class at and, some point. Well, you know, you absolutely welcome. The, the, first, the, the obvious question that I ask them is why should you care about American foreign policy? Because I think for most people, the, the sense is that it's a very, it's very remote from their everyday lives. But as Saeed is pointing out, that nothing could be further from the truth. The, the jobs that are available to us, the, the goods and services that, that we want to purchase, um, the, uh, the, the cultural interchange that we take for granted in terms of entertainment and sports and cuisine, you know, all of these things, uh, whether or not you're going to live or die from a deadly pand pandemic, you know, all of these things are fundamentally intertwined with the relations that the United States has with the rest of the world. This stuff is the essence of foreign policy, you know? Okay. You can't go to Canada right now. That is a foreign policy. You can't, you can't go anywhere. Now, why is that? Because we have horrendously botched what is a domestic health crisis, public health crisis. But we've botched it in such a way that the rest of the world sees American visitors as walking disease vectors. These are foreign policy decisions to close your borders to American travelers. And these have huge implications for how the United States um, interacts with these countries. Cultural interchange that simply happens through the process of travel has been a huge vehicle for the spreading of American influence and soft power around the globe. And the fact that people can come here, experience life in the United States, and go back home has been incredibly valuable to America's standing in the world. And we have literally flushed all of that down the toilet in, uh, in a, in a over the last question. three plus years. And if you, I, I do want to move on to the, to the next question, and, and Kent, you can ask it, uh, whichever Actually, question you want ask, to ask. Can I just ask Peter? Uh, Peter, do you, ever, do you ever show the video of Matt Damon in Goodwill Hunting when he goes through that? You like apples? <laughs> no, man, not that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about Gordon Wood. Uh, where right. he's like he's explaining about his buddy with the shrapnel and the blue pit plate special. I mean, it's just like this wonderful uh, uh, exercise in causality about how one thing can then lead to unemployment, uh, polluted mm -hmm. fish, and uh, and apples. If you really want, Calvin. <laughs> also, Saeed, it's not your fault. Oh gosh. 
It's I know. Your fault. Kent, it's not your next fault. question. So Kent, next Amer question. <laughs> uh, American foreign policy is is bigger than any one person, and is often steered by decades of uh, experience that is uh, you know stored in institutional the institutional knowledge of of the of the employees at uh, the State Department uh, and the Pentagon, how, how much substantive difference in foreign policy is there between one administration and the next? Like between, beneath the surface, how, how is American foreign policy different in the Trump administration as opposed to its predecessors? Wow, uh, Saeed, do you wanna take that one first? Yeah. I didn't, but uh, uh, well, uh, well, all right. Well, 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 let me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> how is it different? How is it not different? One of the things that we have seen has been a hollowing out of the cadres of professional foreign policy expertise uh, at virtually every level in the State Department, in the Department of Defense, and in the intelligence community. And many of these people have been replaced with political appointees who who see their first duty as loyalty to to President Trump, not necessarily to the foreign policy priorities and institutional missions of the organizations that they often hold influence over. Um, so that said, right, the way that the United States does foreign policy right now and has been doing foreign policy for the last several years, outsourcing much of it to, uh, frankly, um, completely unqualified people like the president's son-in-law. Uh, I mean, you, you tell me, is it, a, is it a smart play to make a guy who bought 666, I think, you know, Park Avenue, uh, Park no, Fifth Avenue, Avenue. To, six, six, to, six, Fifth Avenue. Yeah, to put him in charge of crafting a Middle East peace plan. Well, you know, some I, building I, has I, to have be six, 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 Fifth Avenue. I, I suppose. I mean, no, it doesn't. The, There's no thirteenth floor on any building. Okay, <laughs> you don't have to do six, six, six. You know, to, you haven't traveled to, overseas, Calvin. Plenty of buildings do. They right. don't matter. Yeah. We're talking so, foreign look, policy here. Nobody overseas matters. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, so Kent's question had really sort of two parts. The first part is how big a substantive difference is there from one administration to the next? And in normal times, traditionally, the difference has been pretty minimal, right? Um, I, again, this is the thing I talk to my students about. If you look at the history of American foreign policy, going back to the founding period, the story is one of much more continuity than change. And when administrations have sought to make big changes in the direction of American foreign policy, those changes are hard to put into place. They're hard to keep going. Uh, what the Trump administration has done by essentially gutting expertise from all of the institutions of American foreign policy making is it has essentially wrecked um, the it's it's driven it's it's driven the boat into the dock and left it to sink there by the waste by the by the wharf you know it's it's and so in that sense right this is a period unlike any that we have gone through in and certainly in in my lifetime, let alone in my professional life. Has there been a time in, uh, in our history, I mean, you just mentioned your lifetime, has there been a time in, in history that you're aware of where American foreign policy was shattered by one administration, where they said, we're going to do everything differently? I cannot think of a similar circumstance since the United States became a global power in the 1890s. And, and so I guess I, that's a great question, Kent, but I guess what, what comes to mind to me is, I guess, the rhetoric uh, that I have heard, hey, 
prior to World War II, we were war weary. We were becoming increasingly isolationist. We were seeing America first slogans. And then we got bombed by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor and overnight, as a historian, I know it was not overnight, but overnight we became Big Brother. We became George Orwell's worst nightmare. We became not isolationist, but the world police. Uh, team, aware, uh, team America, Durka Durka, Muhammad Jihad. Um, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and so I guess- That's the film what, clip I show my students. That, is that? <laughs> I, Please I show tell them, me it I, is. It is. So I, uh, I, again, the, usually typically the first day in my foreign policy class, I also show the music video for the theme song to Team America. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. And then I asked them if they still believe it's true or if they ever believed that that was true. Gotcha. Um, here we come they, to save they the day. They also probably don't know how great that movie is um, with one scene notwithstanding. Uh, either way, uh, what, 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 I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is the, the theme that I hear a lot as a historian is we went from isolationist to let's take care of the world's problems and now we're increasingly becoming isolationist again. So from a historian standpoint, I'm going, there's some contours here. But again, my, my focus is not foreign policy. I just know, okay, well, we were this and we were this and we were this. And I could tell you kind of what was happening in between uh, as to how we got here. But I don't know the nitty gritty of what got now, us here. Now, now as I'm a, gonna, as I, a, okay, now I wonder, though, uh, inside uh, and Professor Trimbor can, can disagree or not. I think really we became less isolationist in spirit in 1898 and we just, our technology caught up in the forties, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong there. I think, I think in spirit, we were looking around the world by the late, by, by 1900. Okay. So go ahead, Saeed. No, no, please, please. All right. So, so as a historian, Calvin, um, I think you'll appreciate this. Um, this tension between an isolationist impulse and an internationalist impulse, right? Mm -hmm. Whether to be, whether to be engaged in in the in the game of of, of power politics at, on a global level, that was actually a debate that goes back to the founding generation. Yes, this was the sem this is the seminal argument between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson, who we would look at. I saw his, Hamilton. His, I know. Uh, I know. I, I knew this I without seeing Hamilton. <laughs> so did I. I'll just say, right? Uh, that but, made it accessible but, for people. But this this tension between those two positions, and I would I would suggest to you they are not opposites. These are not opposite orientations. Uh, they are two sides of the same coin of American exceptionalism. What they what they stand for are two different ways of perfecting the American project and making sure that it will survive and thrive into the future. Isolationists have historically believed that the way to, uh, to dare I say, make America great again, or to keep America great, is to uh, largely withdraw from the affairs of the world, only have as much interaction as we need to maintain our commercial prosperity, and let the world take care of itself. Uh, internationalists, uh, those we would sort of look at as, uh, or, or interventionists, if you want to use that more recent term, tend to look at the world and say it's a dangerous place. And the way to make the world less dangerous for the United States is for the United States to go out there and shape it in its image. And this is a, this is a debate we have been having literally since 1789. Um, and to spread and, a little democracy. Is that, I think it's like from South Park. 
Well, that's it's like, oh, it's time to spread a little democracy. That's that's one of the four. At. That's one of the four um, objectives that's stated about U.S. foreign policy is the promotion of democracy and human rights, uh, maintaining or increasing a balance of power, uh, the idea of trying to enhance or have uh, access to markets and resources, and then of course this catch-all about national security, and it seems as though there's like what Peter is uh, saying, uh, the whole notion between isolationism and interventionism is about whether these can be achieved either through the projection of power, which is, a, you can do that as being an isolationist, or the actual assertion of power is required, which is what an interventionist is going to go ahead and say. And one could argue that we were, we kind of fell, pardon the French, kind of ass backwards into uh, imperialism as a result of the Spanish-American War, we held our powder dry uh, after World War I when we didn't get into the League of Nations because the Senate wouldn't ratify the Treaty of Versailles when Wilson came home. And then the, uh, the, uh, the Great Depression kind of, in a way, held us to look domestically. After World War II, it was an inevitability because the two largest imperial forces were now bankrupt, uh, France and, and particularly Great Britain. And again, there was a need to go ahead not only to fill in the, the void, a power vacuum, but with a rather uh, ambitious uh, and expansionist counterpoint with uh, Uncle Joe Stalin on the other side. So America gets to that point. But I think that getting back to the original point that you're asking about uh, about changes, I would say that this is, again, something that is not just uh, unique to the Trump administration. It's a trajectory that really began at the end of the Cold War. Uh, when the uh, administrations, starting with Clinton, started to think, well, we don't really need this kind of bulky uh, overbloated State Department, we're just going to go ahead and have empty desks. And particularly, you saw how this became problematic at the time of uh, George W. Bush and 9-11. There were entire quote-unquote desks, meaning experts, within the State Department that weren't at their desks. Those positions were not filled. And those are meant to be those career professionals who have the hi history. They were there when Nixon went on a bender and almost uh, alerted the nuclear arsenal and uh, Henry Kissinger came in and says, that's a bad idea. Um, but that's the other point that there were always other professionals who served as the kinds of fail safes and the circuit breakers in the system to actually say, this is a really bad idea. And we had leadership who actually accepted the opinions of people around and saying that the gut is not the uh, the, the the final uh, arbiter in uh, in, in uh, foreign policy decisions. Well, the, you know, I want to sort of touch onto that because it raises something that's got a contemporary echo. This is also the period in which the United States really becomes enamored of what we tend to refer to as sort of national technological means. So an emphasis on electronic intelligence. And, and an emphasis on satellite surveillance and a, and a downplaying of the importance of human intelligence, right? People on the ground, uh, whether they are embassy staffers or they are experts on at a, at a State Department desk or, or whatever. And 
the, the, the contemporary echo, like literally right this minute, is the debate within the intelligence community over the quality of the intelligence concerning the Russian bounties in Afghanistan for American service personnel. Um, the on-the-ground people in the military and the CIA uh, say, yes, we know this to be the case. We have interviewed people, we have captured people, we have confiscated American dollars, uh, some of a half a million dollars at a, at a Taliban safe house. We know this is going on. The uh, National Security Agency, which oversees America's uh, electronic intelligence gathering apparatus, says we can't confirm that because we've not intercepted any message traffic that indicates that this is actually true. So we can't sign off that this is the consensus of the intelligence community. And it's that debate, right, over are we going to trust people or are we going to trust an electronic intercept that has given the president cover to say, look, you know, if, if this was solid, then I, of course, mm -hmm. would have done something. The so this is a long, this is like a longstanding, you know, what, what Saeed said was right, that this is not, this hasn't happened overnight, right? That the dysfunction we see today is the product of, a, of, of decades of, of, of institutional uh, paralysis and the hollowing out of, of of the governmental bureaucracy, the denigration of expertise, and all of these kinds of things. Okay, so and so what we, it's taken I, I, I is like what it's taken is like a President Trump to weaponize that against his well, own country. What, what I want I, I want to step backwards real quick because I want Steve to get to question four. Like I'm loving this. I might split this episode in two if you guys can stick around a little bit longer than normal. But uh, I mean, this is just great content. But uh, Peter, I, I gotta I gotta ask this question. If we step back, so we're talking about people on the ground boots on the ground. Um, basically, anybody who listens to the show that might watch something like The Americans, like it's Cold War spy stuff, right, whatever. Um, before you had smartphones, GPS tracking, satellites that, like iMint satellites that can look at your eye color from space, those kinds of things. Um, as a expert in political science and the, the history of that, would you say that has changed with the inception? How has that changed with the inception of technology? Because before you really, I guess you really only had boots on the ground. You had the boots on the ground. That was it. They, I, I'm here. I'm telling you, this is what we saw. But now you have technology that creates, we've done multiple episodes where we talked about how uh, technology creates moral questions like Terry Schiavo. Do we keep her alive? Do we not keep her alive? A hundred years ago, she'd be dead, but now we got to ask this question. So when it comes to this kind of stuff with foreign policy, um, technology, like, hey, we didn't get any intercepts, but people are going, and hey, no technology is around, so we're going to go underground with our communication. How how does that affect all of this? And, and Professor Trimbor, I'd like to also add into that if you'd like to discuss the existence or non-existence of cyber terrorism. Don't get me started there, Steve. I, 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 uh, I, I think you know. Speak uh, my language. This, this this might be an inside joke between Steve and I, so we'll just sort of set that aside for now. All right. Um, so look, I think there's there's a fundamental problem that we haven't really figured out how to confront, and that is um, the electronic aspect, the high tech aspect of data gathering and intelligence and all of that stuff has created an absolute avalanche flood, whatever metaphor you want to use, a deluge of data and information that we simply lack the capacity 
to sift through and analyze in any kind of timely fashion. You know, so this is a case where more information does not necessarily mean better information. Um, let's uh, turn the clock back uh, 20 years to, to the, the, the time leading up to 9-11. Here's a situation where you had all kinds of human intelligence and, and electronic intelligence that indicated bad things were about to happen. The failure there was a failure of human beings to coordinate across institutional boundaries. Um, CIA wasn't talking to FBI, and, and I think every, anyone who's read uh, The Looming Tower saw the HBO adaptation of it. I mean, you, you see that play out, right? Um, that was a problem. But the information was there, right? The information was there. The failure was, was to put the information together. Fast forward to the, uh, the, the Lashkar-e-Toiba terrorist attack in, in Mumbai in India. Here, the NSA had, in fact, collected the email and cell phone traffic of the people who were planning that operation. It was all there. It was all there in the databanks. Nobody ever looked at it. No one ever saw it. They only discovered after the fact that the architect of that attack was an American. American, an American Lashkar uh, operative who literally was the guy on the ground that put that operation together, India's 9-11. The NSA found out about that after he was arrested, after he was arrested as a consequence of good old-fashioned gumshoe intelligence counterterrorism work. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, having all of this capability doesn't necessarily mean that we are able to leverage it to either advance American interests the way we might want to, or frankly, to make America any safer than, than we would have been if we didn't have these vast uh, server farms full of, of each of your you know, uh, browser histories. And isn't it interesting that there's a direct parallel between that, Peter, and media outlets doing the same thing? I mean, the, uh, the fact that you have fewer uh, journalists on the ground uh, who are in bureaus around the world cultivating relationships with uh, the local people, with the local gentry, trying to understand uh, the moods, uh, how they may be changing in microaggressions and otherwise. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I've, I've spoken to people at the CIA, and it is, I mean, they will occasionally go ahead and divulge some stuff because it's not classified. Uh, but, but they'll say, yeah, we, there, there's definitely been a policy shift away from having assets on the ground as uh, pervasively as they used to. And so it's not, there, there's just no way to go ahead then and be able to quantify uh, what is lost when you have one person who is in a community for maybe as much as a decade, as opposed to just saying, hey, well, we've got all this big data that's uh, going through the servers at NSA. You know, Said, we could talk about that in in intelligence and statecraft. We could talk about it in the news media. We could frankly talk about it in our own fields of, of yeah. political science and comparative politics, right? I remember as a graduate student being told that comparative politics no longer meant that you were going to go and immerse yourself in a, in a foreign country and its language and its people and its history in, in, in order to understand it, that what it means today to be a political scientist is to manipulate big data sets and to do fancy statistical analysis to try to identify these big replicable patterns of behavior. And anybody who thought that comparative politics might mean you should go and maybe you know, live in the country you're going to spend your, your 
your your career trying to understand um that was uh, that was old-fashioned that was no longer the modern way yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna move on here and pivot off something calvin talked about earlier about how does all this why should it mean something to the average voter um so i like to i'm gonna put a couple questions here uh together and like you to discuss as you wish um please discuss here how trade imbalances actually and the domestic economy might influence foreign policy. And then on top of that, uh, quasi-related, um, I'd also like to take a look at how the U.S. proclivity to use economic sanctions as punishment has destroyed perhaps what remains of the uh, U.S.'s hegemonic soft power. Um, and then also, was it worth a whole lot to begin with? Or was it something that we kind of talked about at home, but it really didn't deliver uh, the way we wanted it to? And also, when we talk about soft power, please define that. Define what soft power is, because you said it earlier, Peter, as like a throwaway statement. I was like, I don't know what that is. And we're in the middle of a show and we're not going to yeah. Google it. So if you could define that when we get to that part of the question. Sure. Um, Saeed, do you want to uh, talk economics? Sure. So when you're getting into <laughs> economics, uh, thanks. Uh, <laughs> as far as how how is it going to influence foreign policy and vice versa? Let's see. Uh, international competition, unemployment reduction in the gross domestic product, reliance on foreign goods and manufacturing, diplomatic and political leverage with allies and others, and dependency on foreign creditors. So they're related. Is that what you're saying? The the Venn diagrams are are brushing (laughs) up against each other. Yeah. So, I mean, the, it's, it's remarkable how, and I, I know we haven't used the G word yet here, but let's go ahead and do it with globalization. Um, it is inevitable that these things are going to be highly related. And I think what we're finding now is the the whole notion of the butterfly effect, not just limited to Ashton, uh, Ashton Kutcher, but the fact That's a great that, movie, man. I'm not disagreeing, yeah, man. Um, but, but the fact that something can happen in one place and then create a ripple effect that then is felt profoundly for us is a major, major issue. Uh, on on the on the matter about the economic sanctions, I mean, if I can just go ahead and add this, um, I was just watching the PGA Championships, and it's it's so much better without the crowds, without somebody yelling in the hole or <laughs> the man at the at the start of every. When season. I found out all the things that that crowds are allowed to do at those at at golf championships, I was absolutely appalled. Yeah, absolutely appalled. So so when basketball comes, for life. When it comes to economic sanctions. Uh, you don't play a whole round of golf with just one club. You don't play, you don't put a pitcher on the mound in a baseball game who only throws one kind of pitch. You need to have it as being a repertoire uh, where you can then go ahead and you can call it carrot and the stick. You can go ahead and use whatever metaphor is appropriate. But the idea that economic sanctions is just one uh, tool in a broader repertoire that uh, the U.S. can use uh, and hopefully be able with the variations used effectively. Saeed, I would would point out that uh, one of the uh, most famous and most celebrated pitchers of all time, Mariano Rivera, only threw one pitch. And yes, of course, he's a Trump supporter. Yes, and he was actually at one of the briefings. Uh, Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's a Yankee. I mean, come on. That's... (laughs) Is that with a Q-U-I? <laughs> yes. Um, so the question These highbrow jokes are totally missing me, just so yeah, we're clear. Okay. That's just right. so we're all right. Uh, all right. It, was a, it was a cutter, Calvin. 
It was right, a cutter. Got it. Uh, it was right. split, it was a split, split finger. finger. Um, okay, now I understand. There you go. Uh, so on this question of trade imbalances, I mean, I, I, it's a, I think it's a, it's a false statement. It's fake news to say that trade imbalances are bad. Uh, I think the reality is that trade imbalances are, frankly, from an economic standpoint, both to be expected and are a good thing. Uh, trade imbalance means uh, that, frankly, you are a valuable market to your trading partner. This is assuming that the imbalance is working uh, against you. And that means that your trade partner, who is selling way more stuff to you than you might be buying from them, they need you as a market. And they want to, they have, a, they have an interest in making sure that your economy remains prosperous enough and successful enough that you can keep buying their stuff, maintaining that, frankly, mutually beneficial trading relationship. Are you talking about uh, Adam Smith here, Professor? Or are you talking? Uh, I am. That? I, I am really talking more about David Ricardo. Right. Uh, but Ricardo, you know, this whole notion of uh, comparative advantage would assume that over time things ultimately balance out as right. each trade partner specializes in the things that they do best. But regardless, mm -hmm. that assumes that all trading commodities are equally valuable, which is Adam Smith. True. Adam Smith is right. more the point of view of. Nobody's doing this altruistic. The invisible hand. And, and, if, right. and, and if you watch A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe, you get the famous uh, quote, Adam Smith was wrong. <laughs> of course, he's talking about uh, different ways to sort of think about what sort of what your best interest really is. Anyway, that's, that's, a, that's a different movie-based digression. You like but, apples? But, but, <laughs> but, 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 but it's, easy. it's better to achieve a, a Nash equilibrium if the other side isn't loaning you the money. <laughs> and I think that that's this one is of true. the challenges that we're finding with, yeah. uh, with trade imbalances today is that uh, in the case of China, uh, they're also our largest creditor. So they <laughs> want to prop us up rightly because we are a large consumer market. They are giving, they're lending us the money to prop us up. That's right. But then uh, we have to think about long term. What does that really mean for us? I, I remember how they played well, this beautifully. Uh, lending us money uh, that's never going to come due, right? I mean, well, well, remember uh, under the George W. Bush administration that he gave the entire nation one point five trillion dollars to go out there and spend nicely. Oh, in the tax rebate, Said. <laughs> I don't know, man. I got to check. It wasn't a rebate. So, uh... <laughs> but the piece of that, though, I mean, what this what this relationship is sometimes described as is sort of it's sort of like economic mutually assured destruction, right? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. China parks a lot of money. They lend a lot of money to us at a very, frankly, uh, typically very uh, favorable rate of return. Like they don't they they're not giving it to us for free, right? They the rest of the world invests in the United States because typically, traditionally, the United States has been both a safe and profitable place to, to put your money, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so that works for everybody. What this means, though, is that China has no incentive, not unless they also want to economically collapse. They have no incentive to call that bill due. Uh, because right, what that's, what, that's what I was getting at. Like that, they're never going to call that because right. then they collapse, right? Because what happens, well, right? All those dollars flood onto the international market. The value of the dollar collapses, meaning the value of China's right. remaining holdings also collapse, and it's just a, a cascade of economic disaster. And so there's a sense that this relationship uh, is both mutually beneficial, but interrupting it in a significant, a significant way would also be mutually destructive.
absent alternatives. So absent right, alternatives. Right, so right now, China is putting in uh, 1.5 trillion into its new Silk Road, the Belt and Road Initiative, mm. which means that it also then has access to ports. It has access to uh, military refueling bases. It has access to new commercial ventures. And also, as you see with its um, rather large uh, $400 billion uh, aid package or investment package with Iran, the ability to move outside the dollar. So uh, China is going to be providing goods and services and uh, infrastructure development in exchange for Iranian oil, circumventing the American sanctions on Iran in a way that the United States is really going to be uh, hogtied to be able to do anything about it. And then it shows America's leverage around the world starting to uh, decrease. So, so speaking of that leverage, let's let's define what soft power is. Oh, sure. I, so, I don't know okay. what that is. Yeah, so soft power is a, is a concept that was uh, first sort of laid out by a political scientist named Joseph Nye in the 1980s. And what Nye explained is the very simple terms that that soft power is the ability to persuade or to influence others to change their behavior in a way that, that you want, right? The way I describe it to my students is that soft power is the ability to get other countries to want what you want and to thereby voluntarily accept your leadership. Oh, it's, so it's, it's the, every, every episode of Madam Secretary. Every episode. I, I haven't watched it, so. I oh my God, watch it. Yeah. They solve everything in an hour. It's in uh, the contrast, right? The contrast, of course, is with so-called hard power, which okay. is typically the the implements of, of of sort of traditional state power, right? Military power, economic okay. sanctions are a form of hard power. It's coercive. Okay. You are trying to force other countries to do what you want. Soft power is you're trying to persuade them, and sometimes that soft power is can be as as ephemeral. Well, not as ephemeral as as abstract as the attractiveness of your system, society, culture, and its values. Right? Quick, okay, quick, quick soundbite uh, answer to this question because I, I have another question I want to ask that has nothing to do with this. Um, but uh, soft power, so like a 30-second soundbite uh, answer to this, even if that's not possible. When it comes to soft power uh, influence coercion, so to speak, uh, is soft power and hard power determined really by the person on the receiving end of it? Sure. I mean, I guess I would uh, use the d a distinction between uh, Vito Corleone shows up at the uh, at the guy's place with a check for ten thousand to get uh, Johnny Fontaine out of the contract. The guy says no. He goes back with Luca Brazzi with a gun to his head and says, "Either your brains or your signature are going to be on the contract." Hard power. Okay. It's cool kid. It's cool kid power. <laughs> it, it's basically that's what it is. It's it's it can't you want to be like the cool kid? You don't want to get beat up by the cool kid, but you also want to be like the cool kid. And if you just kind of go along, you never end up getting beat up. You're never the leader, but you're in his pack. And that's, uh, that's one much the, better than being on the other end. Yeah. One of the the key things to be aware of here is that that soft power is much more difficult to wield. It's easy to screw up. Hard power is a lot easier to use, right? It's a lot easier to use. Soft power is often not entirely under your control. Um, it is a lot of it has to do with how your country is perceived by others. That's um, where diplomacy comes in, right? That's diplomacy. Is what uh, we're talking well, about. It, well, well, but, but it's more than that. 
And I would also say multilateralism. I mean, if if there are other if there are other options available to a country that is in a subordinate position, then they can go ahead and essentially be courted uh, by by the other country. Um, there's a term that uh, now retired or emeritus uh, professor of international relations at Michigan State University, Muhammad Ayub, had called subaltern realism that certain countries are so uh, asymmetrically weaker than other countries that they'll just simply accept what the terms are that are being uh, offered, if you will. Uh, it doesn't even have to be an imposition. So when it's coming down to making an offer they can't refuse, uh, it's more of a matter of making an offer that they really are, wouldn't refuse. No, no, Kevin, I think, and, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, Professor Said. A soft power is basically uh, you look at the United States and you see that we have Hollywood, we have California, we have we have we have sunsets along the beach and other countries want that. Whereas diplomacy is we go to them with a request and we make a deal. Uh, soft powers, they see what we have. They see they see Hollywood. They see the Rocky Mountains. They see New York City and they want that. We don't have to tell them they want that. They see that and they want that. And so they kind of line up behind us in hopes they might get a piece of that pie. I think that's right. I mean, uh, oh. diplomacy Diplomacy is the act of representing your country's interests in an active kind of way, for the most part. Yeah. That's um, basically the, that's sales. It's like just creating covet. You want what we have. Well, so think about this, right? And so to, to bring this back to, again, a sort of a, a, an of-the-moment um, sort of thing that's happening, um, the damage that has been done to United States standing and, and therefore our soft power in the world as a result of the, the way we've mismanaged the coronavirus, I think is almost incalculable. So I read an interesting statistic today. You can get the results of a COVID-19 test faster in Rwanda than you can in much of the United States. Mm. Now, what does that say about this, this reputation for American scientific, technological, public health sort of expertise around the world. What does that say about the- I suppose if, you, the, if you're in Rwanda and you're like, uh, we're much more advanced than you're giving us credit for by even using us as the example. <laughs> and, well, indeed, right? And, and the bigger question is, is, is the rest of the world going to continue uh, in, in the post-COVID world? Is the rest of the world going to continue to look to the United States for leadership when so, we have so, shown so clearly our inability to manage uh, this crisis on our own. So let's jump forward. I mean, uh, not using Rwanda as an example here, but hey, uh, Rwanda maybe, forever. No, maybe this is. Yeah. <laughs> I see what you did there. Um, so uh, maybe this is a hard turn or, or not, but uh, you had authoritarian regimes around the world. But so uh, Trump, Trump is uh, President Trump has uh, offered varying, uh, sometimes uh, very confusing uh, support for what we would say are author authoritarian world leaders, North Korea, Russia. Uh, he's outwardly questioned the effectiveness of NATO uh, and all while praising nationalist movements in like Poland and Hungary, right? So do you believe U.S. support for democracy abroad has waned under the current administration? Or have we, have we seen this before, but because of all the rhetoric that we hear now, we're just putting it all in this one administration. I don't know. Saeed, Pete, whoever. Hey. Uh, okay. Um, there's a couple things. Um, the United States, again, this is another one of these long, deep 
sort of historical patterns. The United States has long had an ambivalent attitude towards democracy promotion abroad. We've spent as much time arguing that certain peoples are not fit for democratic rule as we've had trying to convince other countries to become democratic. Uh, this is the very long sort of uh, back and forth on that issue, just like so many others in the history of American foreign relations. Um, it was really only under, uh, well, if, so if you, if you jump ahead from Woodrow Wilson, right? So Woodrow Wilson um, makes democracy promotion sort of a key piece of his, what, what he is expecting post-World War I American foreign policy. League of, Na League of Nations. Yeah, all that sort of stuff, right? 14 right. points and all these things, right? And it falls flat. Despite the, despite the fact the guy was like a notorious racist at home. Terrible and, racist, and, terrible human And had being. no interest, right? No interest in expanding the franchise to his right. you know, fellow Americans if they That were, ocean uh, changed yeah. him. Right, exactly. I, well, I believe, I believe but, he had the Spanish flu. The so-called Spanish flu. So, so you've anyway. got that, right? You, you have this ambivalence, but you have to fast forward, frankly, to the – and no one really reads the national security strategy documents that administrations produce except people like me. Uh, but you've got to fast forward to George W. Bush to the really one of the first times you see in the stated uh, national security policy of this country the idea that the promotion of democracy is in America's national security interest. His, his own father had, in fact, argued the opposite, Right. That, um, that it could be counterproductive to America's national interests to push uh, certain authoritarian states, especially big ones like China that we were trying to court as, as economic partners, to push them too hard. Um, Ronald Reagan was uh, an opponent of, uh, of the use of economic sanctions to bring about uh, you know, majority rule in South Africa. You know, Reagan believed that uh, maintaining good relations with the white minority Afrikaner government was the appropriate thing for America's national security interests. Um, tr with Trump, it's different because so much of his affinity towards authoritarian rulers is about his own fetishizing of power and authority and his desire to be able to wield the kind of power and authority that he sees these other folks uh, exercise. Mm -hmm. And, and his sort of love affair with authoritarianism has got a long documented history that goes all the way back to the late 1980s and public uh, and interviews that he's given and, and, and uh, public statements and stuff like that. So this is really, you know, his flirtation with Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. These are, you know, uh, these are just part of who the guy is. I don't, think, uh, I don't think Trump represents a departure from this historical norm of our ambivalence about democracy in other countries. Well, uh, professor, I, professor uh, let me just let me just follow up on on that. Sure. Do you have and this is a question I admit that is unanswerable. So I'm asking only <laughs> only for your <laughs> supposition. questions. And that the is dead. Yeah, the cat is yes, and, the cat is dead and alive at the same time. And that is and it it will it perhaps will be answerable someday after certain documents are made uh, are made uh, public. Do you feel that uh, Vladimir Putin in particular is a soft spot for Trump because of said fetish, fetishization of authoritarianism or that there is a illicit financial relationship, which is more likely or both? I'm going to say I'm going to say both. And and the reason I'm going to say both is that Trump's desire to have a signature uh, self-branded project in Moscow goes back to the late 1980s. 
Um, he was first, even before the Soviet Union had collapsed, he was in Moscow trying to negotiate a major real estate deal. And mm-hmm. he, has, he has always wanted to, to have his name on a, a gigantic monumental project uh, in Moscow. Um, there is, by his own family's admission, you know, up through the 2000s, uh, up until the, the, the 20 teens, most of the money that's been keeping uh, the Trump organization afloat was, was Russian money. So I think, uh, I, I think Trump is, is sort of deep in financial shenanigans uh, with uh, various Russian interests. And I think uh, as a good KGB man, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, is able to leverage all of his Mark's um, vulnerabilities. And so I think it's a combination of uh, Trump is vulnerable because of the, the role that, that Russian financing plays in his, in his family's business. Uh, I also think that that Trump has a uh, what's the polite way to put this? He has a man crush hmm. on on dictators. He just does. And it goes back. I mean, this is the thing. Right. So there's this famous Playboy uh, interview that he does in Playboy magazine after the Tiananmen Square massacre. I, I read and, I read that magazine for the articles exactly. as well. Yeah. Thanks, too. Pete. Thanks. You're welcome. And, and Trump Trump favorably talks about. The, the Chinese government's crackdown on the pro-democracy demonstrators in Tiananmen Square, like a thousand plus students are just massacred. He compares that favorably, or un, well, he compares the failure of the Gorbachev government as the Soviet Union is coming apart to basically put the brakes on collapse. And he says, look, the Chinese showed you what you can do with power. The Chinese showed you the power of force. And, and he knew, and he says in this interview, that he knew he was never going to be able to do a deal in Moscow as long as Gorbachev had, was too weak to basically maintain order. So you go all the way back to Tiananmen Square, and Trump is talking about the use of the military to crush pro-democracy demonstrators as a laudable, um, as a virtue, right? Showing your dedication and showing your willingness to, to use force to maintain power. And so this is not something that he's come to recently, right? These are long held attitudes that this man is just, it's just part of the way he sees the world. And I think it dovetails then with not just ambivalence, uh, I would actually say in many cases, outright antagonism toward democracy. Uh, 1953, Mossadegh in Iran, Mm -hmm. 1954, Arbenz in Guatemala, 1961, Lumumba in the Congo, 1962, Nkrumah in Ghana, Allende, 73 in Chile. Um, Well, what does Henry, what does Henry Kissinger say about Chile, right? We can't, we can't allow a country to go communist just because of the irresponsibility of its voters. Exactly, which is, which is what John Foster Dulles also believed as the Secretary of State for uh, Eisenhower, but also important. Humanitarianism can't be our foreign policy. But look at look at the the tragic consistency that even under Kennedy, you then have the ouster of um, of uh, Lumumba and Nkrumah, which I think have probably been eclipsed because of what is seen as his more admirable, though completely uh, failed, attempt to get rid of Castro with Bay of Pigs. In, in 61. So you've got that going on. What, what I would, what I would uh, like to say, though, two points. You're absolutely right that he has a, um, he has a thing for, uh, for dictators, whether it's MBS, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, and the swag and, and, and all that they have. 
But I think it goes deeper. If you take a look at his admiration for Duterte in the Philippines, Modi in India, Erdogan in, uh, in Turkey, um, Orban in, uh, in Hungary, and I'm sorry, I forget the guy from Poland. But all of these are dem democratically elected leaders. So now what he's in fact trying to uh, internalize is the idea that, and, and I will use this phrase, it's almost like a kind of uh, democratic penis envy. Well, they were democratically elected. How can they do it? And I can't. Remember, he also famously told Xi Jinping, wow, you, you're president for life. I'd like some of that. But here he's wondering why he is uh, being uh, suppressed by those pesky old kids, the uh, founding fathers of the United, uh, the United States and the Constitution. The other issue, though, um, and this goes back to something more structural, his view about NATO, and I mean, all right, I'm just going to go ahead and say this. And by the way, only one without a drink tonight, guys. But in the annals of a broken clock is sometimes right twice a day. I think Trump is not that he, I think, even realizes it. He's probably right about NATO for the wrong reason. NATO has been trying to reorganize and recalibrate its relevance since the end of the Cold War. It was a Cold War device. It was designed specifically with containing the Soviet Union and its satellites. And now it operates well outside its mandate. Uh, there were two other defense configurations that came out as well. One was CENTO, the Central Nations Treaty Organization, and CETO, the, uh, the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization. And we don't really hear much about those anymore. But the idea that these these super defense packs anymore, like I, this is the first time I'm <laughs> hearing of either. Calvin, I, Calvin, I think you're most voters are like, what? <laughs> yeah, most voters are like, what the hell are you talking about right now? Well, that's the thing. I mean, in 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 some cases, we just never emphasize that because everything right. is Eurocentric. Um, but uh, but the fact that he has, the, I I don't. He's got a problem with NATO. There's a je ne sais quoi here, but he doesn't know how to articulate it, uh, both literally and figuratively, what are his issues with NATO. So he comes up with these things that speak within his vocabulary. Oh, well, they're not very fair to us. They're not um, holding up their end of the bargain with, with funding it. I think that this is a bigger and deeper issue that's facing uh, the uh, the European countries and okay, the United okay. States. Okay, Sa Saeed, stop for just one second, because, I mean... Uh, it seems like you and Pete are probably from the same. I'm not. I'm not going to ask what your political affiliations are, but it seems like you're probably more aligned than what we're typically used to getting. We don't get a lot of conservatives on the show for a number of reasons. So let's say that a conservative were on the show right now, not Trump speaking for himself, but let's say it was you talking head on the on the left and then the talking head on the right. Um, what would a conservative talking head person say on on this issue? Not like if we're talking about um, voters' rights, if we're talking about civil liberties, if we're talking about culture wars, if we're talking about education, I could easily jump in and say this is what a conservative person would say. What would what Francis Fox, Fukuyama say, say Saeed? Yeah. yeah. What, so, so what, my question what, is, what would what would be the antithesis? To what you're saying, B, and how would you respond? Well, I well, don't I think, think, well, and are and are they both equally valid? 
Okay, so I think you're mischaracterizing Sayid's position here on NATO because this 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 no, criticism. I, so I don't understand it. So I'm wondering what would but, the other side say? So okay, so the other side would be one that really sort of embraces institutionalism, you know, international institutionalism, and would talk about you know. So so what Sayid is essentially saying, and I think he's there, there. There's some value here, right? That there's there are problems in the NATO structure with burden sharing. Uh, the United States has long. Um, railed against a, a number of our sort of defense partners and argued that they just simply don't keep up their fair end of, of the bargain that the United States, you know, commits far more to the defense of our allies than our allies commit to their own defense. And, and, that, and, Trump, and Trump has said that. And Trump has absolutely said that, said that. Right? Yes. He's okay. absolutely said that. You know, the, the flip side of the argument, which, would, which I would present, would say that, that that's the price that we pay for keeping them in our back pocket and not putting them in somebody else's. That this is an, this is a net positive for the United States. It keeps them dependent upon us. This is especially true of the Europeans. The last thing the United States should want is for the Europeans to establish an independent military capability that we are not in control of. Would you consider the, this an extension of the Monroe Doctrine? In that case, <laughs> the Monroe Doctrine. We're yes. not doing that. I, I, We're not I, doing I, that. You, you mean me Maryland, right? <laughs> <laughs> what I would say, though, right? What the United States has long sought to prevent is the Europeans developing essentially an independent, uh, 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 on-par kind of military capability that we didn't have a piece of. Uh, this is in part why the European Union has never been allowed to develop a European military, and why it's always been good for us, for Britain up until now, to be in the European Union, because they were our agents to screw that institution up when we were afraid it was becoming too independent of what our interests were so the fact that we're the fact that we're like going to kick nato to the curb right now and say to you know germany and france and the baltic states that hey you're on your own i mean the last thing anybody should want would be a remilitarization of germany so let me ask let me ask this then as someone who doesn't understand 95 percent of what you just said no just kidding i understand i'm able to track with some of it but um, is there anything, and, and this, this show tends to attract more liberal people than conservative people. We've had some, but the conservative people that we have gotten primarily by and large have been exceptional people. None of them were available tonight. It is what it is. Um, my, my question is, can either of you look at a Donald Trump from a foreign policy standpoint and go, not bad, not bad. Like I hate his moral standing. I, I like he's talking about grabbing women by all the, but like hey, well, like well, foreign well, policy well, standpoint, well, I'm like okay, not so bad. I get that. I don't agree with this, but I'm okay with this. That makes sense. Well, that's what I said though, Calvin, about his assessment or his his issue with NATO. I okay. think he's he's probably the first president. I may be uh, catching up with you on that. So. I might be a little slow on this, so that might be... No, no, no. He's, he's the first president in the cold, post-Cold War era who I think has actually articulated explicitly that NATO is a problem. Uh, his articulation of it is, is, is all over the place. But I think the fact that he's the first one to sort of put his finger on the issue and say, yes, you know, this is, this is a problem for the United States. Uh, second of all, the European Union becoming more cohesive, 
that is a problem for the United States. I mean, if you think about that, that has nothing to do with pol uh, the political um, uh, aisle uh, that he sits on. It has to do with, ironically enough, looking at core American interests. So I, I, uh, uh, I'll give you one, Calvin. Um, and I, 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 I might have to go, you know, take a shower after we get done once I say this. Um, Trump has done something no other American president has been willing to do, and that is to treat the North Koreans the way we should have treated them all along, and that is as, an, as a meaningful player in not just regional but global, global politics. You know, once North Korea has developed the capability that they have, we have to talk to them. You know, now do you say that, do you say that in the class at all? I mean, like, like in a class uh, I, at, well, at Oakland University, would you ever like admit that, or is that just like a podcast only? Don't share this with any of your <laughs> students, kind of deal. You no, know, it's actually kind of interesting. I'll be teaching my international conflict and security class uh, starting next month, and and okay. when we talk about nuclear proliferation, we're going to have to. We do talk about North Korea, and I haven't taught it since that piece of the puzzle has occurred. Um, so okay. you know, That's we'll fair. we'll take a you know, I think we'll. I'll be as honest there as I am being with you. Um, I'll be there. I'll be there. You know, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> Thursday evening, 6.30 p.m., wear a mask, sit six feet apart. We'll um, do. But here's the thing. Engagement with North Korea on its terms, I, I think, was really necessary. Now, if you were going to ask me how we did on execution, if we put the effort into to make that initiative work, the answer is no. Right, because Trump had no interest in doing the kind of work necessary uh, to to make this this these overtures pay off in some way. To his credit, he did push back really forcefully against uh, voices in his own administration, who you know people like John Bolton's and 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 others who are far more hawkish, not just towards North Korea but also towards Iran. And that's you know to Trump's credit. Um, I would say if, if I was going to look back and, I, and I'll say I've done I've done this reassessment in terms of my thinking about uh, Ronald Reagan's foreign policy, because back in the day when I was an undergraduate, it was like, oh, my God, the man's the devil um, with the benefit of what is it now? Good God. Forty years of hindsight. Can you believe um, it? I know it's, it's shocking. It's not quite 40 years. Uh, Dude, Ronald, resident, Ronald Reagan was president. The actor. Yeah, go figure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, you know, back to the future back, reference, you know, that's a Marty McFly with, reference. There it That's is. It. Absolutely. Go on. So with 30 years of, of, of hindsight, right, I have a, I have a more of an appreciation of, of what was good about Reagan era foreign policy. Um, I, I don't know that I'll be able to look at anything. Thankfully, if we're here 30 years from now, you know, look back at Trump era foreign policy and say that was a, a moment I, I should have reconsidered at the time. If there's going to be one of those, it might be the opening to North Korea. Okay. Well, Reagan, I, I would actually argue, though, Peter, I'm, actually, I'm not, I, I'm not say, disagreeing say, with you. I, yeah. say, I, I want you to disagree. Do it personally. We get, we got to move on. Let's, let's go to the next question. So, Kent, uh, Kent, next what, question. Uh, well, uh, uh, yeah. Um, and well, if you want to answer it that way, but let, let Kent still uh, ask a question. Well, the, um, the Arab Spring uh, several years ago was largely confined to the one geographic region, hence the name. Uh, the social unrest prevailing today ranges from South America to Africa and, and throughout Asia. How does the U.S. support reforms in these regions while also maintaining 
um, a positive trade and military relationship with our strategic partners. All right. Well, first of all, let me just get in. Um, it's kind of like what they do in debates. Um, yeah. Let me answer I, the last question. Let me answer yeah. the last question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, would, I, would, I would actually say, Peter, Reagan had it easier because you had a hemorrhaging Soviet Union and an absolutely dormant uh, China that was uh, underdeveloped. Uh, Trump uh, doesn't have the same margin of error, uh, I would say, with, uh, with, with China on the ascent and dominance and, and Russia. Anyways. Well, we can talk about that offline. Um, regarding, first of all, the Arab Spring came about as a, uh, a very specific movement of the frustration and uh, resentment of life under uh, non-democratic or anti-democratic regimes starting in Tunisia and moving forward. It's also important to remember America's role in suppressing the Arab Spring movements in places like Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. Uh, and then uh, when a movement began in uh, Syria, uh, and we'll talk about Syria more, uh, I think, uh, a bit later on, uh, spectacularly poor uh, uh, and schizophrenic policy there, uh, with, with no disrespect to people who actually have uh, schizophrenia. Um, but the idea then that uh, Venezuela, I think maybe one of the places to, to examine, uh, Brazil with another man crush of Trump's Bolsonaro, uh, who we failed to mention earlier, uh, Libya in the case of, uh, of, uh, of Africa being perhaps front and center, but also all of these uh, unrests in Central Afri African Republic, which we did nothing about, and Mali. Uh, and then in, in some places in Asia. Uh, look, I mean, part of it has to do with uh, whether America feels as though it has an appetite for doing things. We've been through this before, did nothing regarding Rwanda. They, uh, there was a genocide there. It was uh, permissible. Uh, what has uh, been going on with uh, the Uyghur in Xinjiang? Nothing. The Rohingya in Myanmar? Nothing. Uh, so as far as what America is really supporting when it comes to reform, uh, wake me up when you find out. <laughs> you know, Said, well, I believe it was uh, uh, Kissinger who said uh, in international affairs, your reputation for reliability is more important than assets, than uh, demonstrations of tactical cleverness. Um, meaning, and, and, and if you don't know what to count on, you're not going to get and that's, and that's And that's not necessarily a bad thing, particularly for those who subscribe to, as, as Kissinger was, and I'm going to throw this, because you're not going to be able to unthink it. The cheerleader for real politic. <laughs> yeah, I believe it's great in I, a skirt with pom-poms. You know, uh, <laughs> Kissinger and Cardinal Richelieu in palms. Actually, actually, it would be- Who's, a who's, the, mean, who's the mean girl in this situation? His, uh, his the PhD, Richelieu. His dissertation was on okay. Metternich. Uh, but, uh, but, but the idea that uh, I, it seems as though the United States is doing fine, thank you very much, in maintaining the relationships that it wants, it is skirting those that it has to avoid because uh, after reading Sun Tzu, it realizes that its opponent is probably either equally matched or superior in its position. But you notice that in the places where things have gone wrong is where the United States has just been uh, very... Uh, disorganized about what to do and yeah. have a real uh, purpose to see it through. Venezuela is, I think, the classic example of that when it came to Maduro and uh, you know, the, the, the other guy. 
Well, I want to also want to I want to respond to this question with another sort of classic debate ploy, and that is to attack Ooh, the premise. Let's let's Al Gore this. Let's Al Gore the shit out of this. Let's I want to I, I want to attack the very premise of the question because Excellent. the question is how does the U.S. support reform? And the answer is the United States does not support reform in any meaningful <laughs> way in any of these places. And in those places where we historically have meant, you know, uh, something about supporting reformers, like in Hong Kong, mm. our own message is undermined by the actions of our current government in the way it is dealt with peaceful protesters. We cannot send, you know, Mike Pompeo to stand on a soapbox and criticize the Chinese regime for cracking down on nonviolent protesters in Hong Kong at the very same minute we are uh, tear gassing people in front of a church in D.C. so the president can have a photo op. We just can't do it. Or can't? Or can and, we? Or, or well, can we, we can, but, but that, well, we've yeah. done it. We've done hence it. The, hence Seen attacking it. the premise of the question, right? Yeah. Right. We're not supporting reform in any meaningful way in in in, in any of these places. I mean, Saeed is exactly right. Oh, so um, it's again. I admitted this at the front end. Foreign policy is not my thing following some of your, this is one of those episodes i listen to every episode after it's done some of them multiple times this is a multiple time re-listen <laughs> episode for me it just it, it is what it is but when anything, it comes to anything to avoid reading fukuyama isn't it yeah yeah I, I, <laughs> is, is that <laughs> and good is it, and good luck finding the thread that connects all these different things he said. signed on to uh, the project for the new american century didn't he yeah he did Said? he did yeah, uh, yeah. but a, his credit but it, to his it, to his credit, in two thousand and three, he put the dunce cap on his own head, mm. and uh, and issued a mea culpa in uh, national interest. Okay, you know what I'm wondering is I and I could look this up, of course, but maybe somebody knows how a guy named Fukuyama came to be named Francis. Francis. Yeah, I don't know. Actually, his 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 nickname was Psycho because nobody <laughs> followed Francis. Okay. All right. So, uh, Kent, next uh, next question. Pick what you want to ask. Let's, let's go. Okay. Well, I wasn't prepared. All right. So, I, I, well, a, here's uh, the deal. Like, it segued so hard, and I got that 1920 prohibition in me, and I'm like, I had a follow-up well, question. I don't know where I was another, going. So it's Kent's and, turn. And another way. Stripes. Another way to dispense with uh, another way to dispense with a question quickly is for a guest to say that's a dumb question. Goodness, uh, story. So, so a Washington Post article from March 25th, 2020, uh, described the, uh, the pandemic, which we are still in, as the U.S.'s Suez Canal moment, uh, a reference which means far more to me after seeing The Crown than it would have uh, previously. <laughs> Um, yes. So if this was the U.S.'s Suez Canal moment, effectively marking the end of this country's long uh, demise as a global leader, do you think this is true? Um, and if so, do you believe the U.S. needs to recalibrate its foreign policy to be more in line with that of a, of a former uh, hegemony? Oh my God. Yes. Oh, uh, what? The question. Hegemon. I don't, know what, I don't know what the last thing. I don't hegemon. know what the last thing you said is. Yes. What's a hegemon? He- hegemon. Big dog. Big dog. Yep. The big oh, dog. Oh, okay. Like, like, the big that, dog. You got to catch was, them all. You got to catch them no, all. It, it was England. It was England, and then it was us, and now it's Steve. Hmm. I, Steve is not allowed to write the questions anymore. Let's just let's just do that. It's very wordy. I mean, not I wordy. It. It's very it's intelligent. Super wordy. Super wordy. I love it. 
He's big. Word. So Saeed, I said yes, but you were gonna have a, like a long and reasoned answer. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, plus I can go ahead and, like you, say I don't accept the premise of the question. Um, I, I I would like to actually say that uh, it's not the Suez Canal crisis. Uh, I would say that America's handling or mishandling of the pandemic is its Chernobyl. Oh, excellent. Yes. Agreed. Well, that's worse, but okay. And I would actually say Syria was its Suez crisis. And let me, if you'll allow me to explain. Chernobyl exposed, and by the way, after you watch The Crown, watch the excellent, excellent Chernobyl miniseries on HBO. I it agree. Was the most I agree. I'm, I'm really trying to get through Umbrella Academy right now, so I might be able to get that in there. I'm not, not sure. Uh, I thought it was not great, not terrible. Stay away from Indian matchmaking, please. Okay, all right. I didn't realize that Jared Harris is Richard Harris's son. My own. There you go. Anyways, um, what Chernobyl showed was the internal weakness of the Soviet Union. It showed cover-up and CYA as being the course of action. It showed how its infrastructure had all of these flaws in it. And that is really being brought to bear with uh, the handling of the global pandemic in the United States. In Syria, you see America's effort to try to game the situation in part by outsourcing what it thought that it wanted regarding Syria to those who it thought were its allies. And not just that the execution was poor, but the prioritization for those allies was completely different in Syria. And not everybody saw ISIS as being the paramount thing to uh, to go ahead and tackle. Some wanted to curb the Kurds. Some wanted a more radical... Screw the Kurds, I believe. But there you go. And so as a result of it, it showed already how uh, American empire was not able to exert itself as strongly as it uh, had in the past very much like what Britain was trying to project in 1956 uh, by getting back the canal from Nasser, by bringing in the Israelis and then also the French. So long story short, when it comes to these two things, in the case of the United States, I would actually say that the situation is irreversible. I don't think that America is going to recover from it may recover from the systemic weaknesses because Biden, if he's elected, will bring back the playbook, make the playbook great again uh, of handling uh, pandemics. Uh, will, okay, will okay, will he though? And, and continue with your your original yeah. thought, and then go back and answer this yeah. question. But like, I think the the idea is like he's the exact opposite of what no, no, Trump no, no. will I'm, be. I'm not saying from that. So, I'm saying I'm saying adhering to process and protocol. So I think that there can be a corrective there. Having said that, I think the fact that the weaknesses of America are now on full display, America will not recover from that. And the, the analogy I would use is this. Tiger Woods used to win most of his golf tournaments before he even stepped on the first tee because he'd already psyched the rest of the field out. They were already handicapped by the, by, by the time they got into the tournament saying, oh, great, he's in it. And he leveraged that to scoring huge uh, uh, margins of victory on the fourth day. After his wife took a nine iron to him and he lost his mojo, so to speak, 
people were coming into tournaments saying, you know what, I think I can win this. And it changed the game of golf in the last, whatever it is, well, 11 well, let years. Me, let me ask this, and this is, off, this is on topic, but not on script. So let's say Biden wins. I, fine. Um, that's great. They come in, he comes in, new president comes in, day one, I'm going to do X thing. I'm going to do all these executive orders. That's fine. Um, but doesn't a new president who comes in, regardless of who was before them, or same party, not same party, they look at the lay of the land and they realize what they can and they cannot do. So is there this false idea that, hey, Biden's going to become is going to be able to come in. Let's say let's say that you're voting for Biden. Let's say that a new guy comes in. Trump loses. He's a one-term president, and the new guy is able to suddenly right the ship. Do you think that that's realistic to think about? Or this, they, look, this, they look at the lay of the land and they go, "Hey, he he." I agree with him, kind of on NATO because, but because I'm pr- part of this party. I can't say that I agree, but now it is the lay of the land, I, and I got to deal with the, the I'm, I'm landscape. Okay, I'm not, he's, he's, I'm not, he's I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about a full overhaul back to the status quo ante. I'm talking okay. about just a restoration of protocol, and okay. having the kind of discipline which the United States not only actually operated with, but in fact projected as being a sign of its stability. Okay, Peter. Yeah, and thoughts? look. So yeah, so look. Here's the thing, right? This ship does not get instantly righted, just like the ship does not instantly turn when you spin the wheel, right? It's a it's very gonna, small it's, rudder. It's going to take time. And, and here's the reality. Uh, the Obama administration, in both of its terms, also had a lot of criticism of its NATO partners about their failure to live up to their obligations under the under the the NATO treaty, right? So this is the, the fact that, that Trump is so crude about it doesn't mean this has not been a longstanding gripe uh, of administrations prior to this. Uh, I do think, though, right, that that this question does the United States need to recalibrate to be realistic about what our actual role in the world is today? And okay. I think the answer to that is yes. I think the answer to that is yes. And here's a dirty secret, right? The United States has not been the global hegemon for more than 20 years. If by hegemony we mean that the United States can act unilaterally at will and achieve its goals, the United States needs partners for us to achieve major goals on the global stage these days. Now, we can screw up other people's goals acting alone, right? We can, we can blow stuff up, literally and figuratively, right? We can throw wrenches into the mechanism by ourselves, Right? We can undermine the World Trade Organization by leaving it. Uh, we, can, uh, we can destroy global cooperation on climate change by essentially pooping all over the commitments of the prior administration. We can do that. We can't solve any of these problems alone. Mm-hmm. Heck, we can't win a war by ourselves anymore. The last time the United States was able to basically say, here is an international military action that we're going to take, we're going to lead, the world's going to follow, and it's going to be a success, was the first Gulf War. Yeah. 19, 1991. And, you know, the political scientist, there's a political scientist named Michael Mastanduno who, who looks at the first Gulf War and says, this is the pinnacle of the brief American unipolar moment. This was the, the time when the United States could, could, could flex 
all of the muscles of hegemony and do whatever it wanted without any fear of being contradicted or obstructed by any other major power. It has not been the same since. And by the time we get to the late 1990s, you get people like Samuel Huntington, uh, another famous, uh, deeply racist political scientist, who was essentially arguing that the United States needed to face reality, that we're no longer in a position of unquestioned global leadership, and we need to stop acting like we are. We need to admit the reality of our own current circumstances. Is that like Aaron Sorkin in the first episode of uh, the newsroom? We're like, we're not the, we're not, not, not the greatest country. I mean, he's, he's, I don't, look, I'm not the political scientist, but that spoke to me. It spoke to a lot of people. I see it make the rounds every election cycle, but we need to admit that America is not the greatest right. country in the world anymore. Is that kind of the, what you're, the, I, not that particular idea, but is that kind of the, the same spirit of what you're getting at at this point? Yes, that the United okay. States cannot and, and shouldn't uh, deceive itself into believing that it can simply do what it wants, when it wants, where it wants, yeah. whether we're talking economically, militarily, diplomatically, whatever. There was a wonderful article just uh, uh, that came out in the last few days uh, about the end of American exceptionalism. It just, got here. it just got and here. We, and we don't have time to get through that, unfortunately. Um, uh, but Steve, you got the last yeah. question, and yeah, I'll close uh, things out. So go sure. ahead. Um, all right, so during the election process, the nuts and bolts of uh, the executive branch's responsibilities in terms of foreign policy often get kind of glanced over because we're looking at judges, we're looking at healthcare, we're looking at domestic policy. Um, but kind of looking at this upcoming election, um, foreign policy is more than just dealing with the past and the, and the current, but also forecasting what's going to be, what we're going to be looking at for the next 10 and the next 20 years. Um, in your opinions, what is it that American foreign policy should be focusing on over the next two decades? What should we be talking about? Uh, I think the I think the talking point is going to be rebuilding fractured relationships. Who would you say we have fractured relationships with? Is Pretty much all of our conservative listeners might might not know. Who, I mean, let's just be honest. And the reason why I'm asking that question is not because I'm conservative necessarily, but because these are not the waters I swim in. So when I say, who do you think those people are? It may depend on what uh, side of the aisle you, you sit on. But I'm going, again, how many, however many sovereign nations Kent said there were earlier on, I'm going, we only know of the bad, guy, the, the bad guys and the good guys. Okay, right? I, will name, so, I will name four off the top of my head that are have uh, Canada, Germany, uh, France, and the UK. Our relationship so we, with them has has no has no recognizable uh, relationship to what it used to be. And so let's say that that let's say that Trump. I want you to answer the question, but let's say that Trump loses and Biden wins. I'm black in America, so I have. I'm not sure which way it's going to go, but. Let's say that Biden wins. Is it automatically like Germany's like we're back, or is he, is there going to be an apology tour that has to take place? Here's the danger: the rest of the world and our former allies come to realize they don't need us after all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is coming down to a referendum on America's relevance, uh, and and that's 
Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. I, I mean, I, I, I actually, I said that and, and it gave me a little bit of a chill uh, because it, it's, it's a very, very jagged pill to, uh, to go ahead and swallow. Well, I was going mean, to say, try, try, try being black in America. You're just, you're just brown in America. Okay, so if Trump so wins, story. you're going to be black in Canada. I'm going to be brown in England. I mean, True is story. this so, – Say, si, si, let me ask you. I mean, was this, when, when we look back at the neocons of the late 90s and early 2000s, is this really what they were trying to fend off? It wasn't that we were trying to continue to promote American exceptionalism, but we were trying to promote the, the, the fact or the want that the world needed us. And so we, we had to keep being out there because we never wanted to let them have a moment where they could determine that, oh, wait a minute, we don't need the United States to lead? I think, I, I, I think you're onto something, Steve, but where they were flawed was in thinking that that was the best and only way of having that to be achieved. Mm. And this idea- Yeah, of, you can- Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, please. Part of it, right, and, I, and like Saeed is, 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 is on it, is that part of that idea was that the United States would be the indispensable nation. Mm -hmm. But many of the neoconservatives had a very one-dimensional view of what that meant. And, and I think that that was, was, was part, of the, of the part of the problem. Um, mm -hmm. And I think what, what, what we've discovered, especially over the last six months, is the United States is, is not indispensable. Well, I mean, and just to kind of like add, add on to that, uh, it was also that the United States was uh, giving the perception that these countries should accept the United States destroying them to save them from themselves, mm. then demanding that they say thank you for the United States saying you're welcome. So uh, like another place. Uh, the, the, the Kevin Bacon Animal House, absolutely. So you've got that part going on. Now, getting back to as far as what needs to be discussed regarding foreign policy, should I say freedom and freedom, or is that done mm. too much? Both of them. <laughs> it wasn't. So, okay, on the short term, I think the one thing that's not being discussed, which is, of course, a big deal right now, is foreign government meddling in the United States elections. I mean, mm. the very idea then that are the core of what, makes us and keeps us American is now being transacted and spoken about with impunity. Like just yesterday, I saw this article saying, oh, well, the Russians are helping the Republicans and the, the Chinese, Chinese are helping. The, yeah, the yeah, Chinese well. and the Iranians are helping the other side. I mean, <laughs> this just reminds me of around World War One when you had these alliances that were out in the open, in some cases secret in the others, in order to go ahead and undermine. I mean, it's, it's just unfathomable that this is happening in my lifetime. But moving forward, and I've said this on the show before, but it's worth saying again, the Belt and Road Initiative is going to be the new aorta that mm -hmm. we have to go ahead and understand in its macro level and in its micro level. China has won. I mean, in the great game of risk, sub-Saharan Africa, moving into South America. They probably started with Australia, though. That's the only way you win that game. Irkutsk, baby, Irkutsk. But anyway, so, so the idea then that we have to think about how to move forward, do we shed the American exceptionalism? There's no reason why we need to go soft into that gentle night. But there's not going to be this uh, this comeback kid mentality. Now, except for a few candidates, though, we poo pooed on the TPP all over the place because it was 
because because it was on the TVP. That was how old were you, Steve? Twelve. I see what you were doing there. All right, but people who people anyway who do full foreign policy are like, I think no, no, no. Just gonna pull back. But what what I was gonna say, Said, is that you had a a large portion of this country that did not want to just participate in a trans-Pacific. Uh, trade organization. You, we, if we couldn't write the bill, we didn't want to be involved with it. But what you're saying right now is, it seems like we need to sign on because we're never going to leave this. Is that what you're saying? They were pulling out of TPP, pulling out of the Iranian nuclear deal were just catastrophic mistakes. Because I think what Obama did get right was understanding our role now is to play a firewall instead of going ahead and launching the catapult. Um, you know, it's. I look back at the this election cycle, which never ends, and I remember on the Democratic side, the one person who seemed to be vilified early on uh, had a little bit of prescience. Uh, Amy Klobuchar just simply said, look, I mean, it's wonderful to talk about all these policies. How are you going to pay for them? There needs to be a grown-up in the room to go ahead and remind people in the area of American exceptionalism that it's just not there. And as Peter aptly put, it hasn't been there for a long time. And so we have to break through the taboo of blasphemy to actually admit that America's position in the world is where it is. And look, it's yeah. not a bad thing. Others are in the same position. I mean, look, I'm a triple threat. I'm a Muslim whose Islamic empire died a couple of, uh, you know, a century ago. And then your British empire died. And I'm a British. <laughs> but you got a really <laughs> nice, you got a really nice mosque a couple of weeks ago. I've been so, told. So I'm, I think, I'm, I think I'm Trump big, would say that you're a loser. Said, you're the common threat, at least. I'm the common threat, <laughs> yes. I'm the typhoid Mary of international relations. Oh, wow. <laughs> you're <terrible>. ground zero. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but look, I mean, we can still have a dignified existence in the future. So, uh, God, uh, I'm going to tell you straight up, I understood a third of what was talked about. This is going to be a fantastic episode. And so, apparently... Uh, I have always said for a long time, um, math is my 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 weak point. We learned English, English history, like dead uh, you know, uh, so dates, dead people, places. That's my jam. Math, letters and numbers start hanging out with each other. They're just going to get into trouble. They're going to spray paint somebody's building. Game over. Um, math is one of the few things that can make me feel stupid. Uh, in a conversation with someone who talks about math that doesn't happen all that often, but uh, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna add, uh, I'm gonna add uh, foreign policy to that com- <laughs> to that equation. Like this, this has been a, I caught maybe a third of what was talked about. And back to uh, Peter's point at the beginning, like what we were talking about tonight is important. It's integral, but at the same time, it's not the thing that somebody goes into the booth and goes. All right. So, what is Trump's policy? Well, yeah. On uh, so not, and, and, not to be I, not to be not to be too presumptuous, but I mean, both to you and to Peter. But how about a spinoff podcast that just focuses on? We could be the Knots Landing. Oh um, my gosh! <laughs> oh, basically, only, only people from the, only people from the mid nineties. Is it Knots Landing and Wings? Was that that? Were, uh, were those try, try try mid eighties at best. <laughs> mid eighties. Okay. Well, well, well not la- Knots Landing was a, a spinoff of something, right? Of, of Dallas. Dallas Dynasty. Of Dallas. Dallas, Dallas. Dallas. Dallas Dynasty. Old so, some, was Dynasty. Some Texas show. 
Uh, Kent will probably have the right answer, but no, um, Dallas. I, Dallas. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I loved this episode. I do have to go back and listen to quite a bit of it because I think that some of the things that both, you know, Pete and, and Saeed, you both assumed as general knowledge because of the academic circles that you, you are in are things, I don't think you're thinking that we think them, but I'm going, you're talking about them because it's like you're talking with friends who dive in this water. And I'm going, I got to Google three quarters of what they're talking about. Fantastic yeah, good luck. Stuff. Yeah, good luck cutting this. Uh, cutting no, this no, into something no, coherent. No, no, no. no. It, it's great. Um, what I'm gonna, what we're gonna do is we're gonna do a future episode where we have you guys on again and dive deeper. We want to just talk about the basics of how this impacts uh, the 2020 election, and at the very least, this episode definitely shows foreign policy affects who you should or should not be voting for. Right. Mm-hmm. The, there's some questions that you should be asking beyond education, before beyond environmentalism, beyond culture wars and, and civil liberties. This is this matters as well. And so well, I think yeah, and, having you and, two on was great tonight to talk about. And, and here's here's the irony of that whole thing. Uh, a president has far more freedom of action on foreign policy than he does Man. on domestic policy. We've, we, and, we have given superhuman uh, abilities to the president in every part yeah. of our government, except for the part the Constitution actually mandates him or her to do. I think the other thing, as far as a takeaway, Calvin, is that there, are, there was a, a natural tendency to try to pigeonhole some of our positions into political factions. And hopefully we've demonstrated that this actually transcends easier, convenient ways of saying red state, blue state. Uh, I mean, these, when it comes to conservatism or liberalism and in international relations, it's not necessarily um, a partisan issue. In fact, if you look at something like trade, um, there has long been sort of cross-party consensus on some really key, really key pieces. I mean, this is what was so frustrating about the whole TPP thing back in 2016 uh, cycle is that it, it, it became the sort of grunt caveman, free trade bad, must bring industry back to U.S. And there's this, this, this idea that somehow we might actually be a post-industrial society is just another one of these realities that we are struggling to accept. Um, and to touch on this one thing that Saeed said at the, you know, towards the end, uh, on the idea of foreign election interference, that this has become a partisan issue is what's shocking to me. Not the go- that foreign governments are trying to influence our electoral process, but that the two parties cannot find common ground, that this in fact is wrong. That I think is a, a deep indictment of the extent of partisan polarization in this country at this moment. Well, I, I think that's a good place for us to, to land the plane. Um, I wanna thank both uh, Dr. Peter Trumbor and uh, Professor Saeed Khan for being on tonight, absolutely fantastic. Uh, conversation. Again, I'm going to have to listen to this multiple times, and I hope people who are, are planning on stepping into the booth, in uh, the voting booth in uh, in November, uh, also listen to this multiple times and kind of become more informed about the issues. Listen to the whole series. Uh, so I want to thank you both for being here tonight, and I also want to thank those of you uh, listening. Thanks for leading. Uh, thank you for so much for listening to Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. Make sure you check out our website, leadingquestionsnow.com, where you can find all of our episodes from this season and the last six seasons, bios, a calendar of upcoming topics, 
and even suggest topics for us to talk about. If you are interested in bringing our program out to your college, university, or organization, email us at hello at leadingquestionsnow.com uh, and we'll get back to you. We can also do uh, digital uh, uh, Zoom ins to, uh, to your colleges as well. Uh, don't forget, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and of course, the Podcast Detroit app. Please leave us a review and we will see you next week.